This is an ABC podcast. Dee Madigan is here today. Dee is from the world of advertising, where she's been a senior campaign manager. You might have seen her on the ABC TV show Gruen that tries to demystify the world of the silent persuaders. Dee Madigan also works on election campaigns for the ALP. She's been the creative director on 23 election campaigns, and just this year she helped put together the campaign that carried Anthony Albanese to the Prime Minister's office. And this is all a long, long way from Dee's early years. Much of her fierce energy comes from growing up in a family where the wolf was always at the door with her father, a former Irish Catholic priest who put aside his priestly vestments so he could marry Dee's mum. They ran a string of businesses, which often ended disastrously. There was ongoing constant money stress. And then both Dee's parents died, leaving her to look after her younger siblings at just 18 years old. And so today you're going to hear the story of how Dee Madigan got from there to here. Hello, Dee. Hello, Richard. What did you do during the 2022 election (laughs) campaign? What was your job? Uh, My job was the creative director, which is to um, do the advertising, both broadcast and digital. So to come up with the um, the ads and to work on the strategy with uh, the campaign director um, to kind of work out what is the thing that's going to move swinging voters, I guess. What, what's the one thing and, and, and how do we then execute it in a way that's going to get people's attention? Your first campaign you worked on was the Queensland election of 2012. <laughs> that's which... because anyone with half a brain ran the other way and I said, oh, no, this is a good idea. <laughs> well, it was a catastrophic Labor defeat. I was, in the ele- I was in the tally room in Brisbane that night. It was fascinating to watch how many seats changed hands. It felt like, I don't know, the fall... It, it, all those years of Labor government under Peter Beattie and Anna Bly just collapsed in such a, a, an enormous heap. What was it like for you to be in that <laughs> campaign, Dee? Fascinating wasn't the word I would use. It, do you know what? It's weird because, it, yeah, it was my first campaign and I was so naive. And so a couple of things have stood out since then. One is the people on the campaign, bizarrely, are still some of my closest friends and um, were some of the best people I've ever worked with. And I got this sense that campaigns, even though the, the end result was awful, was like, gee, this is the best and brightest of people. And like Anna, even though the world was, you know, everyone was against her, there wasn't, you know, internal stabbings, you know, there was none of that sort of shenanigans that go on in a campaign because everyone really liked her because she's amazing. We tried to pull a rabbit out of a hat and we accidentally exploded the hat and (laughs) and it all sort of, um, it all went to pieces. But what I will say is some of the damage we did to Campbell Newman in 2012 was also part of the reason I think we won in 2015 and that was made very clear to me by the campaign director at the time he said we need to be fighting the next election now as well and and I think that you know for you know even though it was a catastrophic loss it also set the seeds for coming back. And now we go to 2022 which was much more successful for you as a campaign than 2012 was Mm -hmm. in Queensland. It was said at the time that Anthony Albanese before that election had what was called a glow-up had better suits, better glasses, lost a bit of weight, had a good haircut. Were you involved in that? I get way more credit for that than I should because anyone who knows Anthony knows he's a man who makes up his own mind about things. So say with the glasses, I'd been saying for a while, wouldn't you change your glasses? No, no. Then he just goes out and does it, picks his own glasses. Like he's actually got really good taste. Um, You know, Anthony irons his own shirts. He, you know, he's really... 
is, um, you know, certainly help with some things, but um, most of the credit honestly goes to him. I've never seen a politician work as hard as he did on, on, on every sort of aspect of the campaign. And I think the more time I spent with him, the more I really, really liked him and respected him because he wanted it so badly and he was going to do everything it took to get there. Anthony Albanese, as many people know, grew up uh, with constant money stress, living in council mm. housing, caring for a chronically ill mum. Have you ever told him your background story, Dean? Uh, I don't think we've really discussed that, but I've certainly, you know, we talk about his and, and, and it certainly impacts, you can tell on the way, you know, he runs his life. There was an article that came out the other day that said, you know, he doesn't run out of food and, and having, you know, been to his house on, on a few occasions, I'd say that's true. Like he's just an incredibly organised person who really appreciates where he's sort of come from, I think. You mean he's got UHT milk and the covered in bread in the freezer, that I, kind it, of thing? It would not be UHT because, you know, he lives in Marrickville and he's got decent taste. Okay. But, <laughs> but he would definitely have bread in the freezer. So where were you raised? Where, where did you mostly grow up in? Dean? Well, I grew up in Melbourne in a suburb called Hampton, which now is really middle class. It's really nice. And it, look, it was it was pretty nice growing up. It was always considered Brighton's poor cousin. Brighton's mm. the next suburb and that was sort of a, about six socioeconomic groups away. Um, and, and look, ostensibly it was a fairly middle class upbringing on the outside, I think. You know, we went to, you know, one of the best schools in Melbourne and um, although we were the only kids, I think, who got dropped off in a Kingsford station wagon. And you were educated by by Loretto nuns. Yeah. What kind of an influence were they on you? They were great. Like, um, I know um, religious orders sometimes get a bad name, and quite rightly so. Loretto nuns were fantastic. They they didn't wear um, habits or anything like that. They were pretty cross about Vatican II, and they were pretty open with us about how cross they were about it. They weren't fans of George Pell. Like, things like the pill, they do they the old, well, this is the church's teaching on it. But ultimately, it's about your decision. Like, the, like wow. I've got to say, the education really? that we had, and I kept in contact with a few of the nuns afterwards because they were fantastic, um, fantastic women. I really, they were really strong and, uh, yeah, a really good education. How much did you know about your parents' background growing up, particularly your dad's background when you were, when you were small? Yeah, look, it's, it, you, you don't, but then, you know, there was, a, my parents were big party animals being Irish and my older sister had a habit of sitting on the stairs and listening. She was always hearing stuff. So she was sort of the one who'd hear bits of rumours and, and she'd come to me and say, I think this or I think that. And But it wasn't until I think I was about 11 or 12 and it must have been for something to do with school I needed my birth certificate. And I got it and I just sort of glanced at it and then it was just you stop for a second and you just go, Mum, do you know that you were married two months after Fiona was born and she, she didn't bat an eyelid. She goes, um, oh, was I? <laughs> um, and then when I got older, of course, I could talk to mum about it and she was much more forthcoming. Dad was less because I think he had a whole lot of angst about the whole kind of thing. Yeah, so he came out from Ireland and he came out as a priest. Yeah, and that was very normal. So in his family, he was one of seven kids. You know, that was pretty average. Mum was one of nine. So his eldest brother went into the British Army. Second one, I think, went into <coughs> the Irish Plucky Freedom Fighters. And then Dad went into the priesthood. And you mean the IRA? Uh, I mean, you know, people who are Okay, uh, interested in, yeah. <laughs> in United Ireland in a very it's, sincere way. Yeah, okay. well, my parents used to have some fundraising nights for the poor people of Ireland, and I'm not entirely sure the money was going to food and clothes. He did his, um, he became, you know, he did his 
seven years or whatever it is, um, and and got sent out to Australia. He was the assistant parish priest at Croydon in Melbourne. And mum's family ha- had emigrated. They were really poor Irish farmer sort of family, and I think they'd come out on the assisted sort of thing, a package, the 10-pound POM thing, I think was extended to Irish people. Um, and she was one of his um, parishioners and he was obviously not a very good priest and she was obviously not a very good parishioner. And um, So that's how they met, as priest and parishioner? I believe so. So they fell in love or they or became infatuated or I don't know. What do you think happened there? I look at it, you know, in terms of two incredibly mismatched people. But when you speak to some of their friends, they're like, no, they were terribly in love, you know. So it's funny, you know, what you see and, and what other people see. So, um, But she, mum was very, very beautiful and very uneducated and dad was very educated. And um, what happened was I think the, the families or her family had got sort of wind that something wasn't, uh, was something was happening. So they sent her to England and I think she went back over there to work for a while. So and your parent, your mum's parents got wind of the fact that she was uh, I think in a relationship so. with the parish priest. I, I believe. And I, they sent her to England to y- get, yes, him, get to her get away, away from Yeah, right. yeah. And um, back then cruise ships used to have to have a priest on them. That was very normal. So Dad used to apply to sort of, you know, go on the cruise ship. So he would chase her. And I've got the letters that he wrote to her as well. And they're sort of really romantic and also incredibly manipulative as well. Um, but anyway, she um, ended up back here and Dad thought that since he was still technically, he applied for a dispensation, which back then was very difficult to get. You mean like you can continue you, being a priest? No, 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 no. you can't. You, you dispensation from your You're vows. You're dispensed. You're right. dispensed, yes. Oh, okay. But you, that's a process. And I, I know that Frank Little wasn't the Archbishop at the time in Melbourne, but he must have been involved and unhelpful because every time his name would come up growing up on the radio, Dad would go, little by name and little by effing nature. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, since since he was um, back in Melbourne, he, he figured that since he was technically a priest because the church wouldn't give him dispensation, he could technically marry people. So him and his mum had a un, unauthorised marriage um, um, you know, where he did it himself. And then my sister was born. And once my sister was born, they were actually married in the cathedral by the archbishop um, two months after my sister was born, um, as I said. But mum was in a pantsuit, which would have been a bit of a thing. As that well. would have been a thing. But you know, he chased her. He got on cruise ships to, to he, yeah, go after was, him. He must all... have been properly in love. It's obviously not just a kind of a, yeah. a one-off thing, was it? Yeah, uh... look, I, th- I think so. And, and, and from friends and that, they say, no, they were madly in love. But I guess from my memory, it was always just as it was all... Falling apart. I think he was in love with the idea of being in love, and maybe he was in love, but it was, um, they were very, very different people. And he was just, he was terribly unsuited to being a father. The priesthood is a terrible training ground for being a father. And um, I think he struggled with that. And well, she, Irish uh, Catholic priests are usually, typically used to a lot of deference. 100%. And he was the youngest son and his father had died quite young as well. So his mum and sisters treated him like he was little Lord Fauntroy. So I think all of a sudden having four kids in four and a half years, God bless the rhythm method, um, yeah, he, he really struggled with that. And, and, um, and then I think mum struggled with the fact that she had to take more of a role, you know, in terms of, you know, Everything, actually. He couldn't change a light bulb. He couldn't put things together. Mum had to take a much more hands-on role with the family and he sort of didn't like that. He liked her just being this pretty young thing who adored him. And when sort of their roles had to change a little bit, I think he really struggled. 
Tell me how <laughs> their first business venture together, making a living selling plants. Yes, so they used to go up into the Dandenongs in Melbourne and um, dig out plants and put them in um, in pots and go door to door, selling them, saying they were from a nursery. Now, my father had the gift of the gab. Like he was, before sort of the drink really got him, I think, he you know, he really could sell anything. And they weren't from a nursery though, were they? No, no, no. Was it he getting was, him out of national parks or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. My father like had a weird sense of how the law was a really good thing. It just may not actually apply to him. Like, you know, the amount of, oh God, the amount of times he used to get pulled up drink driving was just out of this world. But um, anyway, so. So he's going out to the Dandenongs, pulling out like plants, plants and, and going door to door. And oh, the, from dear. that, they, they got enough money to um, rent a shop in Pran and Chapel Street at the top. And it was just bric-a-brac stuff. So they'd go to, you know, those auctions to cease to stay auctions and he had a very good eye and so did mum for furniture, antique furniture and, and art and, and bric-a-bracs and, and then they then rented shops in Melbourne and started specialising and, and mum had a shop called The Hall Stand and dad had a shop called The House of Desks and specialising in, in The House antiques. of Desks? The House of Desks. Right. So that was their business career. They set up these, what, antique places? Antique shops, yeah. And and actually made, like, if he'd stayed in that field, he'd probably have done very well. (laughs) He'd stayed in desk world. In desk world, in antique desk world. And mum was next door in the the house. In the the hall stand, yeah. (laughs) Meanwhile, was there shame for the family back in Ireland, given that your your father had left the priesthood and all the prestige that accrued with having a priest in the family? Huge. And I've got then also some of the letters Dad wrote to his mum you know, about it and how sorry he was. And so we went to Ireland. My father took my sis, my older sister and I when I was maybe seven or eight, but mum didn't go. Mum never went back to Ireland and I don't think she ever wanted to. She loved Australia. She loved Aussie rules. She loved cold beer and, and that sort of thing, whereas Dad had a much more romanticised version of it and I think his, yeah, because of the relationship with his mum, it was all, um, I think mum felt... <laughs> a bit embarrassed maybe to go back that he'd, you know, she was the reason why he'd, you know, left the priesthood. And what did your mum's family think of the whole thing? Uh, they weren't huge fans of dad's because I think they felt that he always looked down on them. And to be fair, he probably always looked down on them. So there was that just because, you know, he was, you know, said highly educated, intellectual, and they, they weren't. It strikes me the idea of going out and pulling out plants from national parks and selling them door to door, that... That in, does that indicate a kind of depression era mind mentality? I mean, jobs aren't that hard to find in post-war Australia in 1970s Australia, are they? Surely. Yeah, I reckon my dad wouldn't have liked working for someone, oh. and in fact, never. You know, weirdly looking back at it, never did. So I think that would have been part of it. He would have again thought he was probably a little bit too smart to be working for other people as well. Did he have a, a fair bit of? I mean, intellectual vanity is a strong word, but did, would you say that would be true of him? Um, look, he did, and in, in fairness, he was actually incredibly bright. So it was, it was, you know, well based. Was he associating with other former priests? Who were oh yeah, yeah. Our house was a halfway house for um, <laughs> for, for some of them were former priests and some of them were current priests. Like our our family holiday would go down to Father Barney at Dramana to stay at his um presbytery. You know that was that was a holiday, and we we had um a couple of them would stay with us. You know if they were leaving, and and Dad would I'm pretty sure set them up with you know friends of of the family and that like so yeah. So there was a. Yeah, a constant stream. But also, yeah, as I said, there was a lot of practising ones that he was still really close to. I think a, a group of them had come out from Ireland at the same time and were all still pretty close. Do you think he regretted leaving the church? Yeah, I, I think he was a man in search of a vocation and I think that's what 
he missed. So he would have, like, he used to write very well. Um, he loved politics. He, like, you know, journalism or politics um, would have suited him probably, but back then it was probably trickier for, for you know, people with very broad, clear accents that no one could understand. How about his faith? For me, it was one of the reasons why I, I left Catholicism was the sort of the hypocrisy of, you you know, go to mass every Sunday no matter what, but you could drink a bottle of whiskey every night and be a complete a-hole at times. And it was that kind of thing that I struggled with, but he always had a strong faith. Was he big on books? Was, was it a house full of books? Massive. Yeah, it was. Um, we, we didn't have We didn't have TV until I was seven when we won one in the parish Fate and one of my memories is coming back and, and the lady pacing out the front. And this was in, I think it was about 77 or 78. It was one of the first colour TVs in Hampton and it was like, we, the family who doesn't watch TV, won a TV. And it was only ever on, like it was allowed to go on for, there was a mini series with um, John English um, called Against the Wind about an Irish convict. Came on once a year, we're allowed to watch it. There was a, an American miniseries about roots, about black rights in America, yep. and um, and occasionally the ABC News. That was it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, so it was all books and we were, my sister, my older sister and I particularly were voracious readers. How important of, was poetry? Then? Massive, massive. So um, I remember being, my father paid me five bucks to learn The Man from Snowy River when I was 10. I can still recite it. Um, Hilaire Belloc, um, prose, poetry, all of that was, and performing it as well. Oh right, yeah. Which was one of the things I used to hate in Irish families. Often you would um, get people singing, um, but that was very normal for kids to get up and sing. But Dad used to always get us, make us get up and say a poem, and that. And I don't like that kids performing sort of stuff. And 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 my father and I remember as a child having some fairly fierce arguments because I was the only child who said no, occasionally. But Having said that, you know, it, it has served me well. It has. It's giving you the confidence to, to speak. Exactly. Surely. Exactly that. So public speaking, he was really big on. Was there a feeling of instability early in your life or did that come later? Early, much earlier than I kind of realised. And it's I've got some school reports of me in grade one and two describing me as a highly anxious child. So really? I, I think that even on the surface everything appeared stable. It could it, it wasn't as stable underneath. I think there was sort of, you know... I, I, mum and dad f- fighting over finances, usually dad, you know, spending everything and, and mum, because she came from a much poorer family, was much more about you don't spend everything. So you carry that with you? Look, I think so, yeah. I've always just been a very anxious, <laughs> nervous person. Listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. You were saying your, your dad set up a business in Melbourne called the House of Desks. And your mum's business, the House of Hall Stands, was right next door. Actually, hers was just called the Hall Stand. The Hall Stand. What do you remember of those shops? Well, we used to look after them, which sounds extraordinary, but from the ages of seven or eight, if Dad was going out to pick up stuff or whatever, we would be left in charge of the shop. Right, you're selling roll-top mahogany desks, are you, And people people would come in and and, and I can tell you, I I know the difference between 
mahogany and walnut. I know why shellacking was like a swear word. It has to be um, French polished because then you get the patina of the wood. Like I've got a surprising amount of knowledge. About, and I grew up just thinking I'm just going to have plastic in my house. I don't want one. I'm so <laughs> over antiques. And how old are you when you're doing this? From <laughs> seven or eight. But but we weren't alone. So, so Hampton by that stage. Sorry, Dan, sorry, you're a little girl and I'm going in to buy a mahogany roll top. And you're going, this one has got a very the, fine finish. Is that to you, is it? It was. It oh. was, which I know just sounds bizarre. But there was other kids as well, like, a couple of years after my parents had opened shops there, there was a whole, like, Hampton, that other end of the train station there, there was a lot of antique shops and there was other kids as well. And and we'd all sort of, you know, go into each other's shops. It was bizarre. So how did that business go wrong for your dad? It actually didn't. It went really well. and I <laughs> And it did so well that I think he thought, I can do business. I'm good at business. And, and he, he wasn't. So he bought um, a hairdressing salon, knowing nothing about hairdressing. I don't know how long that lasted, but not very long. And then he bought into a theatre restaurant called Bunratty Castle that had already been running for a while with two families, uh, brothers, running it. And Dad bought into that as well. And, and like, Irish people with drinking problems just shouldn't buy into them. And, and what was what was this Bunratty Castle theatre restaurant? What was yeah, it? Yeah, so it was, it was like, oh, hokey as hell. I have vague hell. memories of this, by the way. Hokey as hell. It yeah. was in South Melbourne. It was, and South Melbourne's really trendy now. Back then it wasn't. It was in this kind of vaguely industrial area with car yards, and it was this sort of a double-storey shop thing that was sort of clad in grey, and you walked up these dingy stairs, and it was sort of set out like a medieval castle. <laughs> but my first job was, uh, my first paid job, because I never got paid to mind the shops, was ironing the dresses and I got 50 cents a dress and they were sort of the medieval kind the of... serving wenches dresses. Exactly, exactly that. But but How much the, do you hate the whole idea of ironing now, having done that? I just don't. I, my no. kids know that I don't do I do not do the ironing. And, um, and so what could patrons expect when they went to Bunratty Castle? They'd get a meal and it was a half a chicken or it was chops and something, but then they'd also get Irish music and there was some beautiful... like the, I love Irish music still. Like My, my playlist for election campaigns is basically a Fenian playlist by the end of it. Oh, I'm just ready to fight everyone. And so there was a lot of that stuff, which was great. Like mum and dad just went every night at five o'clock to Bunratty Castle and they just give us money to go up the streets in Hampton and get ourselves dinner, which was, there was a surprising amount of freedom in, in my childhood. As long as we had the dog with us, mum placed an inordinate amount of faith in the dog. If we had the dog with us, we could be out whenever. More freedom than you wanted? Look, in retrospect, yeah, definitely. Um, I, although having said that, I'm pretty, with my kids, I do tend to give them a lot of freedom in terms of I want them to be really confident being out and about and getting buses and things from quite a young age. I remember my daughter walking home from school at nine or 10 because she wanted to. And one of the mothers going, you're too young. She shouldn't be walking home. And it's like, it's 200 metres up the road and they do the old, oh, it's a dangerous time now. It's like, actually, do you know what? It's not. It's less dangerous yeah, than it was yeah. when I was walking home yeah. from, from primary school when I was five. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That. What was life like behind the scenes between these kind of three families running the whole of Bunratty Castle such as it was? Well, one of the men, I think, slept with all the women. And uh, including my mother, which she told my father about. Like, she was like, well, he's having an affair with a whiskey bottle. So it was all, like, it was just messy. God, it was messy, one of them. And yep. then he ended up, like, splitting up from one of the women and marrying one of the other. And we're only talking, like, eight people, like, in the sort of the... So it, it got... Are you aware of all this? What is this going uh, on? Yeah, Mum was pretty open about it with me. Her and I were very close. So... Is it terrifying? Uh, no, I kind of understood it. I think it was more terrifying when Dad came home... We'd gone up to stay with friends of the family at some tiny little town in Gippsland and then two days later found out Dad had bought the pub. 
Um, Because I think then he thought, no, we need to save the marriage and save the family and this is all a mess. um, So you're off to Gippsland to run a pub? Yeah, in a town that supposedly had 500 people, but I swear I never saw more than 50 of them. Like it was, I think Dad had visions of himself you know, leaning on the bar, talking about, you know, writers and, and, and politics. Yeah, 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 <laughs> right. exactly that. And, um, and in fact, those farmers wanted to talk about crutching it and that's where you shave the maggots off the sheep's ass. <laughs> and country towns as well. Um, oh, country pubs are really hard work. And the SEC, which um, is now just being reopened, um, had, was just closing down. So a lot of the young people in the town used to live in the Latrobe Valley during the week and work at the SEC and then they'd come home on the weekend. So the pub did quite well, but then that closed down. Everyone moved further afield. So the pub just was a financial disaster. Oh, no. And so what were you doing in the pub? Were you serving behind the bar? Oh, or yeah. The other yeah. So we went to the – we for the first term, so we left our nice sort of posh school in Melbourne and for the first term we went to a private school in Bensdale and just boarded with local families and that was terrible and we hated it. So then we – um, stayed at the pub and went to the local state school. And, yeah, I worked behind the bar pretty much every night and cooked and stuff. I actually really, really enjoyed it. I was the kid who probably really didn't want to go to that town and actually really loved Why? it. Why? Uh, I think because Dad wasn't there because he left pretty quickly to go back to... He um, left? Yeah, he decided after about three months that he needed to set up another business in Melbourne. So he opened up another sh- antique shop that was open by appointment only. Mm. <laughs> so- Right, no walk-in customers. No, no walk-in customers, nothing like that, and left mum to run it and also signed, um, remortgaged it without telling her and faked her signature. Like, it was just a mess. So, but anyway, not having Dad there. Sorry, your dad left to start the business entirely, yeah. left your mum running this failing mm-hmm. pub, and you're saying he remortgaged it, put her signature on it without yep. telling Yep, which she mum. didn't know until she, by the time she found out she had cancer and was selling the pub, didn't realise there was a second mortgage on it. By then, its value had dropped to less than it was actually you know, worth probably. So it was, it was a mess. So he would come up every, like what felt like every eight or nine weeks or something for a weekend. And that was kind of it, but not having him there was actually, it changed the dynamics. I actually really enjoyed that period of my life. And you just charged through something else there. Your mum having cancer Mm. while Mm. she's running this failing pub. Yeah. It was, um, you know, partly, I don't blame dad obviously for cancer, but like, it's just an exhausting living because you can't afford to be putting staff on. So you're there from 8am till you know, till midnight, you know, every night. And then she got diagnosed with lung cancer. Um, She was a smoker. She had given up beforehand. And, um, yeah, she got diagnosed with cancer. So they sold the pub. And I think my dad decided once again that we were going to be a family again and rented some horrible house in Ormond. And we all lived together for about, I reckon it was about three months. And mum said, I'm not dealing with fighting cancer and no money coming in and your father and that. So she rented another shop in Sandringham selling antiques because she needed an income and it was a tiny little place. And my little sister lived with her and I um, rented a little room above a shop sort of two doors down from it. This is awful for your mum, but I'm wondering what you're going through at this time, dude, because to me I'm, I'm getting this awful feeling in my stomach as you're telling me this. Like it feels like water's going down, the slowly going down the plug hole. Yeah, although when you're like 17 or 18 and that, you... you you know, part of you just thinks things will be okay. Like you don't, it's it's your normal, so you don't actually see it as not being normal. It's like when people say, well, how did you cope? It's like, because there wasn't an alternative. You just deal with your day-to-day existence because that's what you do. My little sister was starting to get very unwell. We did not pick it up at that time. She was diagnosed um, with schizophrenia a few years later. And so she went to boarding school 
And my brother had said when we were moving back to Melbourne, there was no way I think he wanted to live in a house with dad. And he um, went to boarding school as well. So by that stage, at least those two were kind of in safe environments, I guess, while it was all sort of going down. And then your mum died mm. from the whole thing. Oh, how much longer did your dad last after that? Nine months. So him and I weren't talking by this stage because when mum died, she left me executor of her will, not dad. There was no money anyway. There was like $4,000 or something. But she didn't want him just to waste it. And so he was really angry at that. But but I still used to mind his shop even then. So we used to communicate. We didn't talk, but he would write a stanza of a poem and then I would write a stanza of a poem. So that was kind of, I don't know, I can't explain. Do you, do you mean you'd write your own poem or he would He would write poem? it and leave his stanza and I would mind the shop and I would write a stanza and then the next time there would be, and so that's, yeah, bizarre. That's um, that's amazing. I don't know what I think. I mean, that's amazing. You're creating this combined po- mm. poetry together. Mm. Without talking to each other. And then, um, and then, yeah, he died nine months later from, um, and that was, so he was, mum was 46, he was 53. And how old was Dee Madigan then? Uh, 18 when my mum died and then I think I just turned 19 when dad died. What was it, 17, 18? I can't remember. So what situation did that leave you and your remaining siblings in? Well, <laughs> well, when dad, when dad died, he hadn't filed a tax return for 10 years and had no money either. So there was, it wasn't like there was any sort of fighting over any spoils because there was nothing. Um, and um, my older sister decided to go to Nimbin and find herself. And um, well, to escape, yeah, way. yeah, which I which I totally get. And I, I look, I did too. I, I was with a, a fellow at the time who said, "Do you want to move to Sydney?" And I was like, "Sure, why not?" You know. Um, and my br- brother and sister were in boarding school, and um, I took a punt that Catholic boarding schools wouldn't kick them out because I didn't have any money for fees, like just didn't have it, so just didn't pay it. And and because we were, you know, middle-class family, not under the radar of social services, no one picked up on the fact that there was a 15 and 16-year-old with no parents. It's awful about them, them dying like that. Was part of you relieved that you didn't have to carry the fear for them, if you like, or particularly for your father after that? Um, yeah, look, there was so much unresolved sort of stuff with him and I that um, maybe at some point we might have got through I think as you get older, you get a little bit more sympathetic towards his situation about, you know, what was essentially just an incredibly desperately unhappy man, I think. And and so I'm, I'm certainly more sympathetic as I'm older. And there were some things he instilled in me that are invaluable, like a love of politics, of literature, public speaking, that sort of stuff, and of a first-rate education. So I try to remember the good things. So you are still 18 years old at this point. Yes. You, now you've gone with this, this fellow to Sydney. Were, were you trying to reinvent yourself, do you think? Um, I think I just wanted to get away. I guess, I, you know, in retrospect, it was probably not the wisest thing, but, yeah, it was almost, almost why not, yeah, start again. And when you came to Sydney, what did you do? Well, I was at uni in Melbourne, so I was on, when Dad was still alive, I was on the homeless study allowance, and then when I got to Sydney, uh, well, after Dad had died at, was on the, the orphan's allowance, which was was actually a thing for our study. And I continued at uni. One of the really lucky things with my life was because of the education. Sorry, I should have said that when I was 17, no, 16 at this country high school, as much fun as it was, I, I realised the education wasn't great because uh, a lot of the country kids take months off to do the harvesting. and the, So I applied for a scholarship unbeknownst to my father to MLC in Melbourne and I won it. 
And I went to my father and said, I have won this scholarship. I want to go to MLC. And he said, no, 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 we'll send you back to Loretto. I want you to have a Catholic education. Right, I can't send you to the Methodist Ladies yeah, College. Exactly. And then, really? Wow. And then MLC. <laughs> what? And then it gets worse. MLC, this is one thing I'm still mad about. MLC <laughs> rang me up then and offered me the full boarding scholarship. Everything covered. Everything covered in a safe environment. And Dad said no. That's outrageous. <laughs> yes. Out of the question. Back to a Catholic school that, did, that, that didn't have boarding facilities. So we stayed with various families and mm. then none of that kind of worked out. And we ended up for my HSC year renting a room above a pub in South Yarra that was not a posh pub, even though it was South Yarra. And it wasn't, they didn't have accommodation there. So you'd get want, drunk people wandering up from the bar upstairs looking for the toilets. Like it was actually, and I was just living in one room and my sister um, at that stage before she'd gone to boarding school was living at the other end of the corridor. And that was, that was it. That was for my HSC <laughs> year. It was awful. So. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Live above a pub and just live with all that, but we can't send you to a Methodist school. I am new to full boarding. Oh, my God. Can't do that. You keep your soul safe. One of the good things with the education I had was it never occurred to me not to go to uni. Like, everyone did. That's what you did if you went to Loretto. You went to uni. And so that was actually fantastic because if I'd not thought about that, I would have thought, man, this is really hard. I could get a job and just not stress. But because that's what you did, I went to uni and and I started doing, because all I ever wanted to do was write. That was it. Um, but I didn't want to starve for my art because, God, I was so sick of being poor. So I started doing a Bachelor of Business in Property because I was going to retire when I was 40 and write. And after one year of the degree, I thought, I can't do this. <laughs> so I switched to a, a teaching degree because it's, you know, it's what you do. I never particularly wanted to teach, but um, I ended up becoming an English high school teacher. How were you drawn into the advertising game? Ah, so when I was teaching, and I was teaching at Fort Street, which was as good as it gets, yeah. and I knew that wasn't me. And I was also managing a pub in Sydney that I'd always worked at while I was at uni. I was behind the bar, and then I was running it. And um, it was at the Clock Hotel, and it was before it was done up. It was when it was a real inner city rock and roll pub, and all the ad guys used to come there to buy illicit substances, I think. And um, and they, I used to call them artistic prostitutes and then they used to flash their gold Amexes <laughs> and, and one day one, a couple of them said, look, you know, you're creative, you, you know, you, you'd be good at this, why don't you do a thing called award school, um, which is how you can get into advertising and I did that and got a job through that and that's how I sort of got into advertising. So advertising is, is a well-paid business. Having grown up with the wolf at the door all the time, now that you have some money and I'm assuming some stability with that, are you still nonetheless haunted by oh, yeah. that fear of that it could all disappear one day? Yeah, a, a little bit. But weirdly then sometimes I'll go the opposite and there's a bit of my father in me where it'll be like, bugger it, I'm just going to buy this or do this as well. So I'm sort of constantly... And is there a part of your mum inside you that goes, stop it? Yeah, 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 yeah. She's a little quiet. She should be louder sometimes. <laughs> but, yeah, so there, look, there is, there's definitely that. Um, I'm sort of getting better as I get older and, you know, and I can see, you know, that the mortgage might actually get paid off one day, which would be very nice. Do you Still, though, have that kind of nagging anxiety about. Oh yeah, well, I just things. have anxiety about everything most of the time, anyway. But yeah, definitely, definitely, um, not as much as I used to. But things like just letters from the tax department would freak me out. Or so I have this thing now where I'll prepay tax, and my accountant's like, "Why do you do that? It's better off being in your account." It's like because I actually can't deal with the angst of owing money is a thing for me. I just, I, I can't do it. I don't have credit cards. I have to, I have credit cards that are fully paid off every month because. 
I have in the past got myself in situations and I just, the anxiety that comes from owing money for me is just big. Are your kids good at mocking that? Because my kids are with me and my wife. I mean, they, they're pretty good at mocking whatever nonsense anxieties we might be having. They're very good at poking it very hard and making us all laugh about that. Oh, my, because um, I'm such a catastrophizer, my son's on schoolies <laughs> and every day I send him a text going, um, are you still alive? And he goes, <laughs> and they do think that's funny. And um, also, like, I have, like, so many anxieties. One of them is flying, so my friends like to take photos of my face when planes take off, which is funny. <laughs> well, just finally, do you mentioned there what your father, despite your exasperating father, despite yep. everything, he gave you that love of literature, that ability to be able to speak and that curiosity and all that. What about your mum? What do you think your mum gave you? Um, how to be a good mother, I think, sort of that unconditional thing, which mum was always... Um, Very loving. Uh, yep. And also um, one thing she did with me was she, she never gave us a lot of rules. We had a lot of freedom. But she was like, never hop in a car with someone who's been drink driving and never lie to me. And that, that was literally her only two rules. So I stuck to them. And I've got similar things with my kids. They can make a lot of mistakes. They're not allowed to lie to me. And they're not allowed to hop in a car with someone who's, who's, who's a drunk driver. So, um, and so I have a really, really open relationship with my children about all sorts of things. Like they, they know with drugs, the, the marijuana, because of my sister with schizophrenia, is one thing that I've said to them. It's something, you know, you need to be really, really careful of because the link between if you have a genetic predisposition, which you probably do, is strong. So, so I'm just, yeah, I have a very honest relationship with my children, I think, because of my mother. And she also had enormous style and, and, and loved clothes, which I do too. <laughs> and how, how has your background informed your politics? Uh, well, my, my parents were both just mad Labor supporters, Dad, which was surprising. Yeah, like but, a, you, but you can react to your parents' political views, but I'm talking about your life experience, your knowledge of the world. I guess both. But Dad was always, you should vote for who's best for the country, not who's best for yourself, which was something that I always sort of made me think about that a little bit as well. But also seeing um, how important safety nets are. Like there's this liberal thing of, of, you know, everyone just needs to work hard and they'll do well. And I saw that for people like me who'd had the benefit of a middle-class upbringing and, a, you know, education at private school and that, it was easier for me. If I had been with a poorer background, with state school and things like that, I mightn't have ended up okay. Like, I had advantages that other people didn't have and, and having then, you know, a lot of things taken away from me still made me realise those advantages were still there and, and, and I'm really, really conscious of that. What a wild and crazy ride your life has been. Dee, it's been fantastic speaking with you. Thank you so much. My pleasure abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.